Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The figure of the human looms large over the history of philosophy, from the ancient Greeks speculating about featherless bipeds to contemporary programmers wondering if they can recreate human intelligence with a series of algorithms. Much philosophical thought in the last few decades has involved much speculation about the human subject, even if it was often hostile to the idea that there is such a thing rather than an odd effect of linguistic and cultural practices. Other critics have pointed out that the idea of a universal human subject has often been used to legitimate and cover up nefarious political ideas and practices. Still, many thinkers today continue to argue for an ontology that includes a unique place for the human subject. One of these thinkers is my guest today, Zahi Zalwa, here to discuss his new book, being Posthuman Ontologies of the Future. Written both as an introduction and an intervention, it kicks off with a long history of humanism and its critics, which helps set the stage for the four chapters that make up the main book. The first explores cyborgs and the ways technology is slowly becoming a part of our lives and what that might mean. The second explores animals and our treatment of them, and what our willingness to send them to slaughterhouses and consume them in enormous quantities says about us. The third explores near-theoretical frameworks, such as object-oriented ontology and new materialism, and the place of the subject in these frameworks. The final chapter looks at race in Afro-pessimism, and what a true emancipation might look like. In all this, Zalua combines theoretical frameworks with cultural analysis, giving the book a sense of accessibility and relevance to our current moment, as well as a couple plot spoilers for Black Mirror and Sorry to Bother You those interested in philosophy and critical theory, and particularly the work of Slavoj Žižek, will find this to be both an accessible and provocative text. Zahi Zalua, welcome back to the New Books Network. Hi. Uh, So we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. We've talked before, but uh, just for anyone who hasn't heard you before, could you uh, maybe introduce listeners to yourself and tell them a bit about what your work and research tends to focus on? Yes. So uh, my name is Zahi Zalua. Um, I teach at Whitman College. My area of specialization is French literature, gender studies, and race ethnic studies. In the last few years, I've been working on Afro-pessimism, uh, the Palestinian question, and post-humanism, which is um, my last book that we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, excellent. So uh, central to any discussion of posthumanism will naturally be the question of what it's coming after, what the, uh, not the post is referring to, but the humanism. So as a way of introduction to this book, could you maybe yeah. give us a primer on what was humanism? Uh, absolutely. Any, any posthumanism, in a sense, has to confront um, humanism. And to be fair, there are humanisms. There's a plurality of humanisms. But they do share something, a core um, element. So in its most basic form, humanism is is an investment 
in the figure of the human. Right? It proclaims that man is a measure of all things. But the problem here is, who is this man? Right? This figure of man, of course, masquerades as a timeless universal, obfuscating the fact that it is marked as male, white, able-bodied, economically privileged, and so on. Still, more abstractly, we might say that humanism is involved whenever there is a subject, whenever there is a philosophy of consciousness, whenever the subject, the human subject, is at the center of the discourse. We have humanism. Yeah, so uh, from long before post-humanism, as you discuss it in this book, humanism has had its critics and skepticism, uh, and you've been alluding to a little bit of it in your uh, definition. Uh, One of the ones you spend uh, some time on in the beginning is Michel de Montaigne. So the crucial accusation you see Montaigne making is the adulation of humanity and how it served certain nefarious political purposes. You write, quote, Montaigne's critical discourse on the new world restages philosophy's timeless question of what is proper to man, revealing that it only masquerades as a universal question, that it is in fact Eurocentric, aimed at solidifying European man's sense of superiority, legitimizing his status as the arbiter of human values. So can you unpack this critique and how it kind of sets the stage or the backdrop for uh, much of what you'll develop later in this book? Yeah, thank you for this question. Yeah, Montaigne, in many ways, is my first love in, in, in literary theory. Um, my first book was on Montaigne, Montaigne and the Ethics of Skepticism. So the figure of Montaigne has always been um, a critical inspiration for me, um, an inspiration for theorizing subjectivity and otherness. So in this book, I began with Montaigne because I wanted to foreground an alternative modality of subjectivity that questioned itself, questioned its philosophical privilege and justification. So here, kind of Montaigne points to an alternative alternative modernity, one that doesn't follow the Cartesian path. So Montaigne implicitly takes up the question, you know, what is the proper um, to men, le le propre de l'homme, in order to scrutinize its ideological framework. So Montaigne draws attention to the ways um, this question, you know, what is proper to man, is used first and foremost to exclude how it excludes animals and non-Europeans, such as the so-called savages of the New World. So whereas Montaigne's contemporaries define the human and basically defining themselves by what they are not, by the savagery of the so-called cannibals, the indigenous population of the New World, Montaigne accuses his fellow countrymen of being more cruel than those they have systematically dehumanized. What Europeans and the indigenous others all share is a certain impulse, inhuman impulse, for excessive cruelty. Now, Europeans are quick to see it in the non-Europeans, while at the same time disavowing it at home. And here I had to be careful in my book, um, to point to cruelty, this kind of impulse to cruelty, but not to, in a sense, naturalize it or justify cruelty as just a facet of who we are. So I was looking for the contrary, Uh, points, so that the avowal of cruelty compels us to confront cruelty, to confront the inhuman core in subjectivity. This inhuman core has been systematically disavowed by Western uh, philosophy. And here are lines, you know, what Montaigne is doing with one of the lessons of psychoanalysis, that we must resist gentrifying the inhuman in us 
as is typical of any humanist discourse. Yeah, moving forward a couple centuries, more recent forms of humanism were developed in much 20th century thought. Um, particularly, you discuss a bit of the existentialism of Martin Heidegger or Jean-Paul Sartre. Although humanism here also received some criti- criticism in the post-structuralist thinking, particularly you bring up Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. So I'm wondering if you can unpack uh, this very updated form of uh, the critique of humanism. Yeah, yes. Uh, so Sartre's relationship to humanism is ambivalent. Right? He rejected any fixed essence of the human. Right? His claim that existence precedes essence rules out any static ontology of the human. And yet, right, Sartre, right, the great anti-humanist, also says existentialism is a humanism. And Sartre tried to recruit Heidegger in his atheistic brand of existentialism, and we know that Heidegger flatly rejected the invitation. I see Derrida and Foucault continuing the Heideggerian critique of the subject and prolong this kind of Heideggerian anti-humanism by shifting from a philosophy of consciousness with this notion of Dasein. Dasein as a structure that doesn't refer back to any humanist subject as a point of departure. But in the case of Derrida and Foucault, um, they turn their focus to language, giving primacy to language over the subject. So for both Derrida and Foucault, language precedes the subject, which is um, a deadly blow to a kind of Sartrean critical vision of the subject, of the human subject. Yeah, so this all sets the stage for your own intervention, which is what you are calling post-humanism. And for you, this synthesizes some of the critiques already brought up uh, with some other approaches, particularly for you, Zizekian ontology and Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, to develop a post-humanist ontology of the subject, one that is always out of joint with its milieu. So I'm wondering if you can give us just an introductory sense of what broadly you've seen developed here. Yeah, yeah. So in the last few years, I've been a bit obsessed with a kind of Zizekian framework. And so this book is a kind of prolonging of that interest um, in what Lacanian Zizekian psychoanalysis enables us to think. Um, so I turned to Lacan and Zizek version of psychoanalysis out of a certain kind of dissatisfaction with some of the dominant voices in post-humanist circles. So those in particular that advocate uh, a flat ontology. So this approach simplifies in my eyes way too much. Uh, wanting to overcome the evils of the human, post-humanists like Bruno Latour celebrates a hierarchy-free ontology of beings. So of course here is no point, is the point is not to reintroduce a hierarchy of being, but rather imagining a different kind of post-humanism that doesn't just simply evacuate or ignore the subject. So as Zizek puts it, the subject of psychoanalysis is not a mega actant. You can attend to the singularity of the subject without fetishizing it, without elevating it above all other beings. So here I'm skeptical of the gesture that aims to overcome or transcend the human, the subject. Psychoanalysis right, has no patience for the traditional subject of philosophy, the sovereign and autonomous subject. But it's, but it's not... It doesn't believe you can escape the subject by simply wishing it away. Instead, it imagines the posthuman subject through the human 
radically redefined by its inhuman core. Before diving into the book's specific chapters, I think it's worth bringing up that you examine several pieces of media throughout the book, which illustrate some of the questions and themes you're wrestling with. This seems to point to the fact that post-humanism is already being wrestled with by society at large, that we as a public are already wrestling with our nature as human beings, even if we don't have uh, or know it or have as rigorous uh, language as you bring to bear in this book. So I'm wondering if you can speak to the prevalence of post-humanist themes in contemporary media and what it might say about the popular understanding of humanity and post-humanity. Yes, yes. So post-humanism is all around us. Um, So science fiction has long shaped our imagination about what constitutes the post-human. So to take a recent example, the figure of the undead in the TV series The Walking Dead is an uncanny representation that unsettles a very understanding sense of the human. So the series invites us to think about what makes us humans, um, about what looks human but not quite human. And there's a clear fascination, if not obsession, in popular culture um, for being otherwise than anthropocentric. So we're always kind of gravitating towards the alien, um, the, the, the formerly human. Um, so in this general climate, focusing on the human can seem morally offensive. Right? We need to be more attuned to others, to non-humans, to the world and climate all around us. So in my book, uh, Being Posthuman, I scrutinize this move and argue that often what passes for posthuman is actually a recycling of problematic features of the human. Turning to the first chapter on cyborgs, you read the difference between cyborgs and goddesses in the light of Lacan's logic of sexuation, writing, quote, we can productively reread cyborg and goddess as competing orientations and modalities of critique. The goddess is governed by the masculine logic of exception, while the cyborg follows the feminine logic of the non-all, end quote. So can you unpack the logic here and how it helps us reread these two figures or orientations or these two figures as different orientations? Yeah, yeah. No, you you focus on the major, the most difficult aspect of that chapter. Um, so this was my attempt to think Haraway with Zizek, and usually an unlikely combination. Um, so I I reread Haraway's last line from her very influential a cyborg manifesto that I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. So I read that statement with the Lacanian formulas of situation. Um, so I, a couple of weeks ago, I just taught um, Lacan's formulas of situation to my wonderful theory students at Whitman. Uh, so it, it's difficult to articulate. But I think um, Lacan's framework gives us something very productive for thinking about um, different, different kinds of subject and um, how ideology fits um, in at least the masculine side of subjectivity. So Lacan himself avoids the rhetoric of sexual difference, but he does talk about a masculine and feminine logic of enjoyment. So the words masculine and feminine do not refer to anatomical differences, but to subject's relation to the phallus. The masculine and feminine sides represents competing logics and different structures of enjoyment. So here might be helpful to flesh out um, this idea a bit. The masculine logic is a logic of the exception 
right? The exception that proves the rule. So here to elaborate a little bit on, on, on Lacan's framework. While all men are symbolically castrated due to their entry into the symbolic order, a masculine logic hangs on to the notion, right? To this notion that there's always one man, right? M, capitalized M here, who does not sacrifice his enjoyment. One man who must remain immune to the law of castration. Such a logic holds on to the promise or hope of a return to a prior, to this prior full plenitude of pre-symbolic uh, enjoyment. In contrast, in the feminine logic, there is no claim to your, of universality rooted in exception. So there is no exception that stands outside the system and closes the system. Right? Then the system as such is never whole or complete. And because there is nothing of women outside the law, women is said to be non-all. Patu in French, inside of the symbolic order. And here, there's always this danger of um, misreading Lacan and Zizek um, on the point of the feminine. The feminine seems to evoke a biological register, but it actually denotes a logic and structure of enjoyment and one that potentially applies to all subjects. So this is why Zizek says subjectivity as such is feminine. So to get back to Haraway's claim that she'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. To be a goddess, I argue, follows a kind of masculine logic. It dreams of a mythic time of wholeness free of patriarchy and misogyny, of a condition without any alienation. In contrast, Haraway's cyborg insists on social reality's incompleteness and fundamental dividedness. The cyborg's identity is not sustained by this nostalgic yearning for a lost or absent ideal. The feminism of the cyborg, unlike the mythical goddess, does not deny its imperfection, but rather identifies with this ontological monstrosity. Turning to the show Black Mirror, you develop a reading of a couple episodes that challenge a simplistic reading of the show as anti-technology, or what we might call the goddess reading. So where some might be tempted to see the show as depicting the ways in which technology invades and corrupts human existence, you instead show how technology works its way into our always already corrupted lives. So can you unpack your reading of the show here? Yes. Um, so in this chapter, um, I engage in a critique of transhumanism. So transhumanism is a form of posthumanism, a kind of radical form of posthumanism that, that depicts the posthuman in the most positive light. So transhumanism defines a posthuman as that which transcends the bodily limitations of the human. Right? What allows, what allows us to do this is technology. So transhumanism is excessively utopian. So it believes, transhumanism believes that the human can be perfected by technology. The body can be improved by technology or biotechnology. And as you said, there's a kind of goddess yearning, the pursuit of perfect plenitude. Now, this vision of the posthuman provokes an array of reactions. On one side, you have thinkers like Fukuyama and Habermas who ring the alarm bell, warning us that the cyborg uh, and its technology and the biopolitical manipulation, commodifications of the genome are putting our humanities at risk. Right? what it means to be human, that is being jeopardized by this new technology, this manipulation of genes. So at one level, the series Black Mirror pursues these utopian, dystopian implications of transhumanism. 
but it does so in a way that risks evoking nostalgia for a view of the human freed from the enclosure of technology. So I look at a couple episodes um, in, in this chapter. The episode, The Entire History of You, where the protagonist Liam struggles with the challenges of a technology that promises to overcome the limits of organic memory. And we can see, we can all appreciate um, the temptation to have a memory that is immune to opacity, that it can be recollected, the kind of clarity of memory, right? We can all yearn for this. So this new implant technology is called a grain. It functions as an audiovisual recorder which can play back experience internally or externally on demand. So here I'll give you a spoiler alert, um, a warning. Um, Liam's grain fails to deliver on his transhumanist promises to, to perfect memory, to improve human reality, human existence. Uh, so the cyber technology, right, the grain, only heightens his jealousy towards his wife, Fee. At the end of the episode, Liam yearns, right, learns and yearns for a return to being human, right? He discovers this perfection of the human is, um, is a fake. Um, so he, he yearns for this earlier time, for this kind of natural view of the human, the human without any cyborg technology. So his solution is self-mutilation, right? The violent removal of the grain. And I find this ending deeply problematic. Um, although I'm a big fan of the show, this ending um, is problematic, right? It suggests that the problem, right, the cause of Liam's emotional turmoil is exclusively the new technology and not human desire or the pathological structures of jealousy, right? The kind of stuff that relates us back to the human subject. So it focuses the blame on technology. So it's anti-technology rather than seeing technology as um, foregrounding, you know, the problematic aspects of jealousy, desire, and so forth. Turning to animals in the next chapter, you bring up the oft-made comparison between the mass slaughter of animals in meatpacking plants and the concentration camps of the Holocaust. So you find that the comparison, while not inherently objectionable, has been challenged at times because of some of the assumptions such a comparison demands in order to make sense. Um, and you bring in a number of figures. So I'm wondering if you could maybe give listeners a sense of uh, the parameters of this debate. Yes, yes. So any comparison with the Shoah or the Jewish Holocaust and meatpacking plants provokes objections for some people. That's clearly the case. I, for my part, um, resist this interpretive prohibition, right? Like, do not compare these two. Um, the comparison provincializes the tragic events in European history by questioning the exceptionalism of the Western human. So there's something similar happening in comparison between the show and racial slavery, a question I take up um, in my last chapter on anti-blackness. So for me, the question of analogy is not as you say, a priori, morally or politically dubious, as some charge. What must always be resisted, though, is a certain will to homogenize, to erase differences in the act of comparison. So the question is not to compare or not to compare, but how to compare. I think we should be skeptical of any analogical identification, but be critically open to analogical evaluation. So there's nothing 
So if there is something objectionable about saying animals are the new slaves or animals are the new Jews, this is an example of a too simplistic equation, a one-to-one identification. But there is nothing objectionable about examining the ways some beings are deemed purely disposable, where cruelty and their suffering is no problem for humanist thought. So I think that comparison invites us for thinking about the logics which render some beings valuable, deemed human, and others who are not deemed human um, are subjected to radical disposal. Later in the chapter, you turn to the question of eating well and eating ethically. The central point you raise along these lines is that people can find ways to minimize their knowledge of current meat production practices or find ways to know without letting their knowledge affect them, of knowing without really knowing. Can you unpack the problem or difficulty here? Yes, yes. And and evoking eating well here is, is, you know, Derrida's very um, powerful formulation. And that, and that idea of eating well, that philosophical imperative of eating well, has, has, I see it as immensely suggestive. So in, in Derrida, right, Derrida's move here is to shift the question from what we eat to how we eat. And eating here has to be understood literally or symbolically as a consumption of animals. And that eating for Derrida is unavoidable. So it's never a question of simply eating or not eating, but how to eat well, right? This is a kind of ethical, political injunction for Derrida. And in this chapter, I try to connect Derrida's reframing of the animal question with Zizek's writing on the fetishistic disavow. And just to you know, elaborate a little bit on, on what a fetishistic disavow looks like. So the structure of a fetishistic disavow is, I know very well, but still. So here, using that structure to talk about right, the, the, the human subject, the humanist attitude towards animals follows this fetishistic uh, disavow. As enlightened humanists, we maintain a split attitude. We know about natural selection, right? We're all read Darwin. We know about symbolic castration. I mean, I can't say we all read Lacan, but we are familiar with the sense that, you know, we're imperfect. Um, we comp- we're compromised subjects. We don't get what we want. So we can get a little bit of the symbolic castration. But nonetheless, we act as if we didn't know. We act as if we were special, as if we were whole or non-lacking, or at least we hold the possibility of being whole. Uh, again, right, I don't have to say it, but Trump capitalized on this idea right, of making America great again, whole again, that right? is possible. So this, anytime you have this notion of wholeness uh, is always suggested by nostalgia. So psychoanalysis and Derridian deconstruction work to disrupt this kind of fetishistic disavowal that neutralizes traumatic knowledge. So in many ways, deconstruction and psychoanalysis wants us to confront this traumatic knowledge. So Derrida and Zizek, in their own ways, right, and they do it radically in different ways, compel us to confront the animal as the figure of the neighbor. So here, the neighbor has to be also unpacked. The neighbor um, is not the image of somebody who just looks like me, a copy of yourself, right? The neighbor as alter ego, the imaginary neighbor, is precisely what um, the radical figure of the neighbor avoids. Uh, So here, the neighbor 
In question is the unknowable neighbor, the traumatic neighbor, what Zizek calls the real neighbor. The terrifying otherness of the neighbor also implicates me. So here the neighbor is not only a problem that comes from the outside, the subject as neighbor, the subject who avows the inhuman core of the human. So I align, I follow Zizek in aligning this inhuman core with this neighbor from within that is, in a sense, inaccessible to us, that we disavow. Turning to object-oriented ontology, you put it in dialogue with a number of other theories, particularly actor network theory and new materialism. Uniting them all, you argue, is what you call object fever, which you describe as, quote, a fascination for an obsession with objects, a responsibility to document and preserve their mysterious lives, reflecting an urgent need to imagine a future of objects beyond the violent anthropocentric lens of the human subject. So can you unpack this critique and explain what you mean by object fever here? Yes, thank you. Um, So what triple O, new materialism, um, actor network theory have in common is a certain kind of um, categorical rejection of the linguistic turn, right? For, For them, too much emphasis has been given to representation and power, meaning too much emphasis on the human, even if this human has been displaced and radically critiqued, as in Foucault's um, proclamation of the death of man, la mort de l'homme, in the order of things. So what these movements initiate is an ontological turn, a fascination with being um, before the violence of representation. So for them, ontology trumps epistemology, right? The question of being trumps the question of knowing, which draws too much attention to what are the conditions that allows me to speak about the world, right? And, and, and in a sense, they blame Kant for this. They blame Kant's reorientation of philosophy towards its epistemological limitations. So these thinkers of these movements, Triple O, um, New Materialism, Actor Network Theory, take their inspiration from Quentin Miasu's 2006 Après la finitude, after finitude, where he boldly declare, declares uh, this need for a return to the great outdoors, right? le grand dehors, right? uh, this kind of ontological aspiration. Object fever, for me, names this impulse to fetishize the non-human object, what, what lies outside of me. So specifically within Triple O, I find a lot of virtue signaling, right? We care more about the human, the non-human, whereas theory, and here theory gets um, a pretty lousy representation, right? Theory becomes a caricature of psychoanalysis and deconstruction, so theory cares more about the subject, even if that subject is compromised by language, power, and so on. In contrast to this object fever, you propose, borrowing a term from Alenka Zupanchik, object-disoriented ontology, a theory of the paradoxical barred subject. Uh, can you unpack this orientation here? Yes, yes. So Alenka Zupanchik uh, puts her finger on the fundamental difference between psychoanalysis and triple O. So if triple O is a movement of those posthumanist critics who claim to have moved beyond the subject, object-disoriented ontology slows things down, right? It insists on the singularity of what it singles out as objet petit a. So objet petit a poses a problem for triple O, right? 
its location is paradoxical. It is not only in the object as the object cause of desire, right, of the unattainable object of desire, but also in the subject. Right? So objet PTI is never reducible to the object. It is what makes this object interesting for the subject. So, and let us not forget that for Lacan, the desiring subject is a byproduct of the symbolic, right? Desire is always desire of the other, and here the big other, right, of the social order. My desires are never purely my own. We desire according to others, right? We follow social scripts and fantasies that teach us how to desire and what to fear. So in contrast to triple O, object-disoriented ontology foregrounds the barred subject, the split subject, the subject reduced to the void. And the encounters with objet PTA only intensify the subject slack. So unlike triple O, this subject is clear, unlike triple right, O's reading of the subject, this subject is clearly not the subject of the anthropocentric tradition. It is an ontologically paradoxical subject, a subject perpetually at odds with itself. In the final chapter, you turn to questions of race, and central to this chapter is the Afro-pessimist tradition, which is one of the most relentless critiques not only of most people's ideas of race and racism, but of the attempts to or at an easy reconciliation or overcoming of racial antagonisms. So can you unpack the core critique that it develops? Yes, yes. So, so my last chapter is titled Black Being, with being under erasure, a barred being, represented visually as a strike through. So this crossing out is tended to name modernity's constitutively excluded other, the slave, the black being. So the other figures that I tackle in this book, the cyborg, the animal, the object, are topics quite familiar for posthumanists. I think every single posthumanist deals with Haraway's cyborg. It's unavoidable. Any posthumanist has to acknowledge the role, the important role of the animal in rethinking the human. Object is a fairly recent phenomenon in posthumanism, but people have acknowledged, yes, this is a radical turn away from the human not only animals matter, but non-human animals, objects are also in the mix. Black being seems to be an odd topic to bring into post-humanist discourse. So that was my challenge. If you really want to challenge the human, you have to look at what the human has been predicated on, which has been a critique, a negation of blackness. Um, so you really want to argue for a radical reconfiguration of our discourse and modernity, you cannot ignore racism, anti-blackness, especially anti-blackness. And the general consensus among post-humanists is if you get rid of the subject, you implicitly get rid of the messiness of race and racism, right? So um, talking about race or anti-blackness might strike as too humanisticness orientation, that, you know, we have to move beyond the human. And I resist that gesture. And I turn to the challenges of Afro-pessimists and the way they make blackness, but the negation of blackness, constitutive of being human. So any credible post-humanism must respond to the claims of Afro-pessimism. And I take my time and kind of unpacking what the Afro-pessimist argument is. And I look at Frank Wilderson and Jared Sexton in particular, um, 
how for them anti-blackness is not just another form of racism. There is no redress for anti-blackness unless you destroy the figure of the human. So again, the value, right, um, the value of the human to, to adopt a defense of the human is to implicitly prolong a certain kind of anti-black attitudes. So humanism is anti-black, post-humanism is anti-black unless it connects the relationship of the human to anti-blackness. Um, so any post-humanism that does not confront here the challenges of of Afro-pessimism is at best incomplete, right? You just need a couple more chapters and maybe your post-humanism would be complete. At worst, it's complicit in the proliferation of anti-blackness. You look at the movie Sorry to Bother You as a way of taking on the Afro-pessimist critique while also synthesizing it with discussions around racial capitalism and the ways in which racism and capitalist exploitation intersect and overlap. So I'm wondering if you can explain how the film complicates Afro-pessimism here. Yes, yes. So one of the significant challenges after Afro-pessimism is to think about cross-racial solidarity. Um, it's always a puzzling, puzzling problem. Um, how do we construct a kind of coalition when anti-blackness seems to be everywhere, um, even or especially among um, non-black people of color. So for Afro-pessimists, right, cross-racial solidarity, any movement that focuses on cross-racial solidarity is still in some, at some profound level invested in the idea of the human. Post-colonial critics and Marxists are still invested in what they deem narratives of redemption. They still believe in the human in a vision of plenitude. The colonized can aspire to a time right, for a time before the settler. Exploited workers can envision communism, right, a way of working, of laboring without alienation. So for the Afro-pessimists, no such options are available for black folks. So what I find so beautiful and sorry to bother you is the way the film refuses a clear separation between political economy and liberal economy, between a focus on the politics of economic exploitation and a focus on society's collective unconscious, the production and circulation of anti-blackness in everyday existence. In Boots Riley's film, political economy and liberal economy are entangled. We have a powerful account of racial capitalism, of what Ashila Membe calls the becoming black of the world. In the film, we get an account of cross-racial solidarity among the workers in their fights and their struggle against the evil capitalist Steve Lift and his company were free, which is offering today's wretched of the earth a view of slavery with a human face. So this company, Were Free's message is clear. Why live with economic uncertainty when Were Free can guarantee food and shelter, protecting the most vulnerable from the unpredictability of market forces? So here there's a kind of invitation into slavery, a kind of perfected slavery 2.0. The post-humanist twist in the film is that we don't just get cross-racial solidarity. We also get cross-species solidarity. So here I'll give you another spoiler alert. Lyft's plan to engineer a new type of being backfires. 
But initially, he wanted to inject his slave workers with a formula that turns him into stronger, more vigorous, and productive horse-human hybrids, right? The kind of equi-sapiens. So Lyft's plan fails. The film's black protagonist, Cassius Cash Green, who is tricked into becoming an equi-sapiens, leads a charge in the uprising against Lyft and Worry Free. For me, Sorry to Bother is a kind of poetic response to Afro-pessimism. It foregrounds anti-blackness without ignoring the capitalist framework. So the film places black being and the animal at the center of the struggle to imagine otherwise the human and our global capitalist condition. In the book's conclusion, you note the rise of posthumanism seems in many ways to parallel the rise of the Anthropocene. So in conclusion, I want to ask, how do you see posthumanism helping us better understand a world that is slowly but surely changing in response to our activities? How does posthumanism as a theoretical orientation help us think and act in our new world? Now, I mean, a great question. And, and, and I wanted the conclusion to kind of bring the many voices together. Um, and the, and since I began with the Anthropocene, and I wanted to end with the Anthropocene, and how the Anthropocene is a perplexing phenomenon, right? So it foregrounds humanity's role in the order of things, while at the same time diminishing its potential to address the crisis in the stated order. So for me and others, the Anthropocene is really incomplete as an explanatory framework. I see the rival term capitalocene as correcting the Anthropocene's ideological function. So the Anthropocene serves as an, as an ideological purpose um, when the focus on human beings as a species obfuscates the devastating role capital has played and continues to play in destabilizing our planet. So at its best, posthumanism compels us to, to come to terms with the ongoing ontological crisis in the human. Right, posthumanism opens up alternative ways of imagining the human, right? Being human as non-all, incomplete, and here we can we can see what disables, in fact, enables. Right, a critique, a devastating critique of the human, opens up the possibility for something radically new, and beneficial. But we have to keep in mind that, but that this kind of fundamental displacement of the human and humanism creates the possibility for either nostalgia or invention. So the former, the, the, the path of nostalgia, dreams of a mythical time of wholeness and plenitude, whereas the latter, right, the path of invention, labors to make the impossible possible. Against humanism's attachment to sovereignty and self-transparency, I end my book with what I call an inhuman, uh, a plea for in, inhuman posthumanism. So the failure of humanism to contain the human allows for a reconfiguration of the human. This this posthumanism includes the inhuman, right, the improper paxinals in its scope. This posthumanism, right, the inhuman posthumanism insists on the question of the neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Who or what is the neighbor of the human? It insists on the neighbor's constitutive strangeness, a universality of strangers and strangers that implicates all of us. So what does the other want from me, right? A question so dear to psychoanalysis is the most pressing and enigmatic question. What, what we might even call it an inhuman question. It is a question that no posthumanism can afford to ignore or find comfort in answering definitively, especially in our eagerness to act and change the world. So that's my 
kind of message to folks interested in posthumanism before wanting to go out there and act and change the world, meditate some more on what constitutes being posthuman um, in a way that allows us to meditate on the inhuman core of the human. Yeah, that's a very thought-provoking way to end. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? So uh, currently I'm, I'm working on my second book on Palestine. So the, the, the tentative title is Solidarity and the Palestinian Cause, um, Indigeneity, Blackness, and the Promise of Universality. Hmm. Yeah, that'll be... Excellent. I'm sure we all look forward to it. So Zahi Zalua, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.